Chapter 8 of Seeing Darkly. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Seeing Darkly by the Reverend John Sparhawk Jones. Chapter 8 The Coming Temple. Quote, and I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. Unquote. Revelation 21, verse 22. Between the death of Nero and the destruction of Jerusalem by Titus, the apocalypse probably should be dated. Internal evidence locates it about 68 or 70 of the Christian era. It was a time of loud explosions. On every breeze were wars and rumors of wars. The horizon was black with storms, and the ground shook under the shock of armies. The Romans were closing round Jerusalem besides being engaged in conflict with the Parthians beyond the Euphrates. Uproar and disorder, loud crashes and sharp cries as of a tottering world were heard on every hand, and these phenomena are reflected on the pages of John's Apocalypse. Men were in a high-strung and feverish condition, and especially the Christians of that age, for there can be little doubt that they lived in daily expectation of the second coming of Christ and the visible inauguration of his kingdom which would put a full stop to all the wild tumult and mighty tossings of the time, unwheel the chariots, break the iron mace of war, snap the bows and quiet the obstreperous blast of trumpets, and bring in Messiah's reign of righteousness and peace. It is clear to any reader of the Apocalypse that the age in which it was written was a troubled, uproarious one. The staggering world seemed nodding toward downfall. Lurid lights and awful glooms chased each other over the scene, and it seemed as if the barbaric splendor of mighty Rome would be quenched in blood and all noises soon hushed by the Prince of Peace. So, at least, thought the Christians. They themselves had passed through the fires of persecution, for mention is made of those who had suffered on account of their fidelity to the gospel. The first five Roman emperors were Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. These, the seer says, had gone, and as matter of fact the young church had seen a martyr age under two or three of them. Nero committed suicide in A.D. 68. Vespasian took the purple in 69, and Jerusalem fell in 70. Evidently to the Christian soul it was a horrible time. The idolatrous homage to the emperors is broadly hinted in the phrase, quote, the worship of the beast and his image, unquote, and perhaps Nero is meant. John borrows largely, to all appearance, from the colossal, cloudy imagery in the book of Daniel in order to set forth the symptoms and movements of that stormy age. Yet it is not necessary to suppose that the apocalypse was exhausted by the events and revolutions of that period, and that tracts of it may not yet await fulfillment in the evening time of the present world and in connection with the setting up of Christ's kingdom on earth. Prophecy is large and elastic, and susceptible of more than one application. We do not know how much of John's revelation is still unfulfilled. Time alone can declare that. One feature of the composition, however, is plainly observable, that like all the Hebrew prophets, this one too is radiant with hope. Across the stormy sea of his century John sees light, an illimitable expanse of blue, the red hues of a glorious day that should ride the heavens for a thousand years. Judaism was a religion of hope, all the prophets were hopeful, nay, confident. They were sanguine optimists, sure that God would finish what he had begun, 
and would never leave the world like a cake not turned. John is of the same mind. In this respect he is a thoroughbred Jew, and agrees heartily with Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and all the rest. And in this connection, speaking of the future and of a more perfect humanity, he mentions the absence of the Jerusalem temple, as if to point out a contrast between the apparatus of religious worship then in operation, and a nobler worship, a higher, more stable order of things, which he clearly foresaw, in which there should be no slain beasts, no altar, no officiating priest, no ceremonial days, no temple with its portico and Gentile court and gate for proselytes. None of that externalism familiar to the Jewish mind would then be needed, for, quote, the Lord God and the Lamb are the temple of it, unquote. Clearly the language is prophecy. But whether the seer alludes to the heavenly world and sphere of angel and deity, that a state of spiritual perfection which we conceive as lying beyond time, or to a civilization one day to be set up on this planet during the predicted reign of universal righteousness, commonly called the millennium, is not clear. Both views have their advocates, and the only arbiter will be the fact when it arrives. Men cannot agree touching the obvious dogmatic teachings of the Bible, how much less concerning prophecy, which is by its nature vast and vaporous. The Hebrew prophets probably saw the developments of the future as one sees objects in a dream. They took no note of time or order or exact sequence. Details were not marshaled with scrupulous care. The ground was not staked off like a meadow or lot by stiff lines of demarcation. The great features stood out in bold relief and clear as sunlight, but the rest lay in shadow, and the prophet did not see distinctly beyond the main interest and the cardinal facts. Hence the ambiguous, misty character of the prophetic scriptures. Facts are set side by side, and seen in immediate juxtaposition, which in point of time are separated by long intervals. Christ describes the siege and sack of Jerusalem, and the end of the gospel dispensation among the Gentiles in the same breath, sliding out of the one into the other without premising that they were two totally distinct histories, divided by centuries, so that it has puzzled commentators to interpret them. This is a characteristic of prophecy. It is not a sun picture or photograph, hitting off the exact expression, the brow, the lip, the nostril, the dimple on the cheek. It is rather a sketch in crayon, a rough draft, in which things are indicated by a daub here and a dash there, by heavy or light shading, as the case may be. Such being the genius of prophecy, it is not easy to exhaust it or tie it down to any one intention. For the idea of it is not to write history beforehand, but rather to show the broad drift and trend of the world, the trunk lines along which it moves and the chief terminals and landings to which mankind in their journeyings shall come. This end has been sufficiently answered. The old barbaric kingdoms, with their Tyrian purple, their colossal bulls done in brass, their pyramids, their ivory palaces, their silken pavilions and scepters of gold, have sunk below the horizon, as it was foreseen they would. Jacob, Balaam, Moses... Isaiah, Amos, and other divinely sagacious men perceived dimly that more was to break forth out of God's providence than their eyes had seen. They beheld new stars climbing the sky. They saw stones starting from the mountainside and rolling through the earth, accumulating volume and momentum and crushing the effete things which they struck. They saw gleaming scepters arising out of obscure tribes and universal dominion passing from the Tigris and the Nile to unborn nations. They saw barbarous peoples holding forth imploring hands for a teaching Levite and for a new law. 
beyond the bow and spear and battle they saw that in the evening time of the world there would be light and peace. They beheld a greater prophet than any who had visited them, an invincible captain, a universal king, a finer race, and a better society settled on more stable foundations. Those old Hebrew seers threw out their jagged, disjointed sentences and strong, impassioned words at the finalities of human history. They probably did not see all the niceties and nuances of the situation, but seized with sure forecast the essential items and practical ultimates. They give the net result. They say that the sun will set clear, stormy as the long day may have been. They deal in final destinies and eventual settlements. The Bible is full of this prophetic element. It abounds in the Old Testament. It carried the ethical element in Judaism, insisting upon the spirituality of religion as distinguished from ceremonialism. It was thus a bright candle in a dark, weltering world, raying forth comfort and hope. Moreover, the New Testament is full of prophecy. The miracles of Jesus are prophecies. His words are largely prophetic, even when primarily intended for the purpose of instruction. His resurrection from among the dead is the most significant, stupendous prophecy of all time. The apostles also take up the same strain and flash light upon the undiscovered future. Listen to John, how his imagination wings away into a coming future. He beholds splendid cities, he hears the thunder of mighty orchestras, he sees streets paved with gold, a new social order, a new civic life, a new worship, a new civilization rising out of the decay of old fixtures. When, where, how is not distinctly stated, only this much. He sees that the radical, universal change is to have human nature as its material and basis, living either here on a renovated earth, or in another sphere, or perhaps in both. Among other characteristics of the new order, he declares there shall be no temple there. Let down in vision amid that strange scenery and all its furniture and appliances, he looked round to ascertain through what methods and institutions the new life of man would express itself. Was it to be like the old Jerusalem, Rome, or Babylon, or any of the old world capitals, of solid masonry and a maze of buildings? And the one thing that struck him most forcibly was this, that he found no Solomon's or Herod's temple, no Aaronite priests, no ephod, no mitre, no processionals, no curling incense there. What does this signify? What but this, that the era is coming in the education of man when the soul will be ripe for a fuller, more voluminous revelation of God, and of the truths which concern him. And when, by consequence, the current modes of conception, of statement, of formal expression, and of consecrated usage will fall away as inadequate or superfluous, because the moral reason of man shall have come closer to reality, and be readier to apprehend it. I remark in view of this prophecy that the arrangements of this present world are only relatively good, and are not designed to be permanent. Whatever they be, either secular or sacred, they stand related to man's present faculties and needs as those now exist, not as they may be modified hereafter. Human life on this planet is not a stable fixture, an absolute, abiding thing. It is a running stream winding through successive landscapes and latitudes of opinion and custom. Incessant and insensible changes are evermore set up. The instrument, method, statements which suits one period will undergo alteration later, and possibly be replaced later still by something that better satisfies the hunger that is in the air, and the evils that cry for a remedy. Hence come all the experiments of history, 
its revolutions, colonizations, battles, literatures, inventions. They testify to the restlessness of the human spirit and to the growing mind of man, that the human mind is not a sponge, a clam, a moss on the rock, a sluggish thing of low organization and vitality, but active, dynamic, progressive. All the changes that take place in human society are a reflex of changes in the sphere of mind and of the steady flux of human thought. So true is this that the men and achievements of other times which we pronounce memorable and heroic would probably have been impracticable and abortive had they been attempted earlier, and would be impossible in our own contemporary age. Luther, Calvin, Hildebrand, Thomas of Aquina, Loyola, Peter the Hermit were fortunate in the time of day at which they lived, and probably could not make so deep a mark upon the popular imagination now. The impulse they gave to the world has carried it far beyond their reach. They are great and potent where they stand, and in relation to the issues of their times. But set them down in the broadways and crowded marts of the world as it now is, and it would directly appear that there has been a silent drift since their date. The temper of civilized man has changed. The conditions of society are different. Standards of judgment, canons of taste, and topics of human thought have all shifted. Men are now asking other questions and seeking a solution for other problems than such as agitated earlier ages. This cannot be helped. It is the nature of mind. There is nothing absolutely fixed. If the idea or truth remain essentially intact, the mold is shattered. It is put into other words, illustrated by new information, argued upon different grounds. Thus, if the name of monarchy is preserved, it becomes constitutional monarchy, that is, parliamentary government, government by discussion. If the ideas of God, eternity, retribution, heaven and hell abide, they pass, perhaps, out of gross material imagery into more refined, idealized modes of representation. If the idea of human fellowship springs up, it transcends after a while the boundaries of the tribe or clan, and embraces a nation, later the earth, becomes more and more altruistic, setting up commerce and growing Catholic and humanitarian. These expansions and contractions are constantly going forward. An age of metaphysics and scholastic theology makes way for one of maritime discovery. A century of moral ideas and of religious wars and social reforms is followed by a dreary, mill-horse age of dull work, of money-getting and physical comfort. The ultimate secret, why history unfolds in its observed order, is beyond our analysis. Only this seems clear, that nothing is fixed save the mind and its capacities and cravings. John gives voice to this great fact of the advance of man from stage to stage, when, speaking of some future era, he says that there was no temple there. And if one could imagine himself a literal Methuselah, living a thousand years, a contemporary of ages, he would have occasion to observe how true that is, and by what insensible steps the race of man has passed through successive phases of organization and experience. As he walked down past the world with its crowded centuries and histories, an exclamation of surprise would escape him now and then upon failing to find what he conceived to be deeply eradicated and permanent. He would see venerable institutions passing under the hammer, doctrines, usages, laws, industrial systems, philosophies of life and of the universe all showing signs of decrepitude, things apparently made of rock, iron, and adamant, and rooted as the everlasting hills, dissolving in a thaw and passing away in vapor. Standing in the middle of one century, he would say, quote, I saw a universal empire bidding fair to flourish down to the last syllable of time, 
but a little later I looked, and lo, the nations were casting lots for its vesture and dividing the spoils." Unquote. Standing amid another century, he would say, quote, I saw a universal church, a supreme pontiff, one Christian commonwealth, and I thought that Hildebrand and Innocent would hold undisputed power till the end of time. But I looked again, and the tiara was tarnished, the peoples had revolted, the Reformation had come, unquote. Standing amid another century, his word would be, quote, I saw absolutism, irresponsible personal government in full flower, in the person of a Charles or a Louis, but I looked again, and what a ferment! The air was electric, the earth shook, the rain descended, and the floods came and beat upon the lofty towers of pride, and a cry went up, Babylon the Great is fallen, unquote. The democracy had come. Oh, let some Methuselah travel down the centuries and watch their changes, the exits and the entrances, and surely every little while he would exclaim, I saw no temple. I saw the new constantly transcending the old. I saw that all things were in motion, and that passing away was written upon the world and its contents. I saw human thought poured from vessel to vessel, and human nature taking on different vestures. It seems to be the fact that thus far man has attained unto nothing which is more than relatively good and serviceable. The world is like an old garret, filled with belated furniture, hair trunks, ancient andirons, grotesque bonnets and fans, wheezy clocks, faded pictures and screens, cordless harps, outlandish apparel, forgotten literatures, dusty antiquities, and discarded rubbish. How much has been left behind? How much spoiled wheat and cumbrous baggage has been thrown overboard on the long voyage? How much has served its day and fallen asleep? How much once indispensable has been shelved and is gathering green mold? I saw no temple therein. What a tremendous truth it is! The things that are seen are temporal. The great world has its sunsets as well as the solar day, and there have already been many of them. It has its seasons like the year, its budding springtimes and its gorgeous autumns. It has its tides like the sea, high watermark and low watermark. It has its phases like the moon, now full, now sickle-shaped, now gibbous. It changes with man. It bespeaks his character. It betrays his bias. All its processes reflect his preference. Whatever disappears does so because, on the whole, man does not like it. Whatever arrives comes to answer some human call. If anything drops out, it is not sorely needed. Its power has waned, its necessity is no longer apparent, or it can be refashioned to suit the new exigency. The wine can be poured into new and stouter skins that can bear the ferment and tension better. But John's vision has another aspect and application. As already stated, it aptly describes the collective experience of the race thus far migrating perpetually out of one civilization and social order into a succeeding. But there is more in it than that, for it seems to teach that the soul of man is destined to come into nearer relation to the living God, the supreme reality. This expectation and high density are expressed under a figure, no temple, that is to say that man's knowledge of God and of the universe is on the way to more subtle refinements and a clearer definition. It is practically the same idea that burst upon Paul. Quote, now we see in a mirror darkly, then face to face. Now I know in part. Unquote. A magnificent prospect it is that the infinite God and the moral problems of this unintelligible world and of existence as a whole shall take on new shapes, divulge new meanings. 
Man at present is densely ignorant touching the highest topics of human thought, including his own possibilities. He apprehends all religious truth through the medium of crude, inadequate definitions and material symbols. The supreme realities loom upon us big, vague, dim as through a thick fog. We catch a glimpse of them, but do not see them as they are. Relative to the ideas of God, of spiritual perfection and of eternal life, man is an Eskimo, dwelling among icebergs and polar cold and the twilight air of a frozen zone. But according to Christian prophecy, he is yet to dwell near the equator, in a tropical, aromatic, soft summer land and under the vertical splendor of divine truths. He is to revolve in a larger orbit and nearer the throne of God. If so, it would seem to follow that while the Bible, the Church, the frame and constitution of nature, the course of providence, all the appointments of this present state are unquestionably commensurate with the requirements of man as he now stands, yet a crisis is coming, an epoch will dawn, when this may not be quite so true, because he shall be furnished with a more powerful organism, with a more sensitive nerve, with finer fiber and a larger cerebral capacity, so to speak, and more rapid and intuitive perceptions and greater receptivity, and by reason of this his increased volume of being shall be able to receive and use what is now incomprehensible. I saw no temple therein. Why not? Probably because there was no longer need for one. I can think of no better reason. It appears to be a prophecy of the yet undeveloped and potential life of man's soul, under some future, inconceivable conditions which await him, when God shall make himself more audible and articulate than now, at least to those who wait for him. John's predictive vision, then, seems to foreshadow a radical change in those forms and statements in which religious ideas are now couched. No temple. Doubtless many of the old battle-grimed banners will be lowered, many tattered flags will be furled, many old war drums will cease to throb, many watchwords and shibboleths will fall empty and meaningless, many vestments, rituals, pompous, sacerdotalisms, and considerable dogmatic theology, mayhap, will shrivel up and go to pieces in that day, when the Lord God Almighty shall become the temple of a redeemed race. Much that now carries the air of supreme importance may then take a secondary rank. Quote, the last shall be first, and the first last, unquote. And to this dogma, and to that form or ceremony, it may be said, quote, friend, go up higher, unquote, or, quote, friend, give this man place, unquote. Indeed, it is impossible to gauge the dimensions and range of this enigmatic sentence, I saw no temple therein. If Columbus' discovery of America and the exploits of the 15th century navigators revolutionized geography, if the discovery of the circulation of the blood made an epoch in medicine, if the discovery of planetary motion altered the position of the earth among the family of worlds, if steam and the electric wire annihilate space and time, if these minor revelations, like a sunrise, have wakened mankind to new views and interpretations, how much more that high day when God shall manifest himself and open his universe more freely to man, when there shall be no need of a temple or of the symbolism, metaphor, and apparatus by means of which eternal things are now mediated. And if any one ask, Shall not my favorite theology hold good? Will there be no Bible, no church, no altar? No song, no sacrament in that holy empire of restored humanity, whenever and wherever it may arise? Possibly, but if so, not what befits this present scene, and man at his present stage of knowledge and hampered by his stringent limitations. 
I saw no temple therein, says the rapt seer of the Apocalypse. It must mean something. And what else can it mean than this, that a vast organic change is yet to pass upon human nature, rendering obsolete and antiquated much that is now indispensable and useful. Verily, this is one of the spacious and splendid prophecies of the gospel, that man is destined to know more about God, about the true, the beautiful, and the good, about the mysterious universe that he is marching toward, a larger and finer brain, a more cunning hand, a purer heart, and a concord of more harmonious faculties. He is like a mariner on a tedious voyage. The stale biscuits will answer until he has cast anchor and goes ashore to eat the mellow fruits of the land. Something like this seems to be the teaching of John's vision, that, as the final outcome of present arrangements and after they have done their work, there will be a revelation of God to man, compared to which this earthly life is a dream, a twilight. A personal and living providence will then no longer be called a great perhaps, and the immortality of the soul will have become an axiom. The power and essential superiority of spirit will become manifest, rapid intuitions will take the place of tardy logic, probability will ripen into proof, and great truths, now disputed and doubtful, will have become as sure as sensation. Prayer, it may be, will take different expression. Praise will be different, worship, adoration, will migrate into other forms. All religious exercises may pass into another phase and take on another tone and complexion when God and the Lamb are become the temple of the ransomed race. When? Where, how, on this material globe, or in some other firmament of immensity, these particulars are not given. It is prophecy, dim, glimmering, inorganic, shapeless, afloat in vacancy, steeped in silence, fringed with splendor. The Bible from Genesis to the Apocalypse rumbles all through with some unspeakable, tremendous, far-off event. It is like a promissory note that has not yet matured. It is like a fruit tree in springtime full of eyes, swelling buds and opening blossoms, all ripening toward autumn. Here and yonder it flings up a nebo, a hermon, a beetling crag or high headland, from which one may look out and away toward the sunset of time as we know it, when man will be ripe and ready for an unveiling of the Godhead and for a breaking of secrets that had not previously been possible, and the symbol will give place to reality. If this be at all a correct rendering, what a mere nursery filled with the clack and cries of nurses and children is the Christian church, compared to the adult, spiritual, and future state of redeemed men. Christian doctrine, too, say the best of it, how inadequate and unsatisfactory, how many raveled edges. Surely our creeds must be but angles of the truth, fractional parts, bearing the same relation to unseen reels that the debtor's fifty or sixty cents on the dollar bears to what he actually owes. All we can do yet a while is to take the likeliest materials at hand, and frame the most logical, coherent, moral, and satisfying conception of God and His requirements of which we are capable. Use what you have. Believe the gospel delivered to you. Take to heart its great promise and prophecy and live by it. This is the time for faith, for patience, for watching. We know enough to answer the present distress. God may not utter any more truth concerning himself yet a while. Go live by what is revealed in Jesus Christ. It is more than enough. He has power to forgive and to sanctify souls. He is the way of life. Do his commandments. Live in his spirit. Trust in his powerful blood. Forms, creeds, rituals come and go. 
no human theology can adequately translate eternal things. No form of worship, whether highly ornate and ceremonial or of the simple, silent sort, can lead one into the holy of holies. But we can do the will of God. We can hope in His mercy. We can work righteousness. We can act upon our best impulses. We can make articles of faith and forms of worship crutches to lead us to a higher landing and to immense horizons. We can believe, obey, and glorify God. We can name the name of Christ and become His disciples. This is enough now. This is all that is possible now. All life is progress from lower to higher, from accident to essence, from symbol to reality. As man moves forward, this and that drops away, superfluities are discarded, and substantial values are kept. I saw no temple therein. They need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light. It is the same truth in a different phrase. Life is in its best sense an everlasting progress and ascension, along the course of which this and that falls aside outworn, preposterous, puerile, as the soul waxes in power and reaches a higher altitude and draws nigh unto God. Meantime we need the sun and the moon and the temple. Systems and creeds, forms and ceremonies, these are fixtures of the present time. Use them for what they are worth. Get all the good out of them they contain. And grow in grace. End of chapter 8 End of Seeing Darkly